Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 22 of Dart Against Humanity. This episode would have been recorded sooner if it wasn't for the fact that due to inclement weather, the Boston Red Sox-New York Yankees game that was supposed to happen at 1 p.m. yesterday afternoon was pushed back to 7 p.m. And as you all know, I'm trying to not record these episodes before or after certain Red Sox games. But I figured that had the Red Sox clinched the series, well, not clinched the series, had they clinched the AL East, I would have been able to just record the episode no problem. Problem being is that I wait the entire day for the game. And of course, since it was going to be an early game, the Red Sox kind of conceded it. You know, they had Nathan Eovaldi pitch. They uh, sat certain people. Uh, Mookie Betts didn't play. Uh, rather than have him be DH, they had J.D. Martinez play um, outfield. They had certain people pitching out of the bullpen who just are terrible. So, and they barely lost the game. Like, they almost took the lead in the ninth inning. The Yankees kept making error after error. It was really weird. But I decided that I would do this episode now. I'm recording this episode at 6.45 a.m. And I'm in my apartment talking into my phone. So, what's happened recently well if any of you follow me on instagram you notice that i've been extremely busy i haven't been you know really on there but i've been busy i've been you know active on twitter because it's something to do while i write i'm like a shark i kept to be constantly in motion constantly working like actually i'm finishing up something right now as i'm doing this and i figured if i don't do this now then who knows when i'm going to stop and take a break and do this. A uh, few things I'd like to talk about. One being, I've recently gotten to this ongoing discussion about when I tap out of something. Now, I like to deal with art. And as you know, with art, we have different ways to gauge a quality or our personal you know, our personal like goalposts for what we expect for something to be excellent or just something that we want to consume, whatever that means. And I know people say that like comparison is the thief of joy, but we're humans. As humans, we're something called time binders. What that means is that we keep track of things. And keeping track of things means you compare things. And comparing things means you compare things one versus the other. You weigh them. This is how we know that we have, this is how we get favorite things. This is how we have favorite restaurants. This is how we have favorite games we play. This is how we have favorite TV shows, favorite songs. We prefer things. There's a reason because due to our personal preferences, 
or just our different levels of standards based on our backgrounds or upbringings or what have you, we all have different levels of standards. And it's flavored by different things like birth order, uh, when you were born, what you were exposed to, uh, how early were you introduced to this particular thing of art, how much do you know about it, and something else that uh, is a sticking point that I've been really trying to deconstruct probably since I was a child. The idea of being a snob about something or the idea of expertise, the concept of it. Uh, I say this because one of the things I like doing is that one of my favorite Netflix series is is a series called um, Ugly Delicious in which the main guy behind the series explores and deconstructs the idea of snobbism or what authenticity is and it's weird because a lot of people were surprised that I'm into it because they consider me to be an elitist or a purist or a snob and what I hear them saying is a zealot because that's what that that's what the terms usually used for I'm sorry it is um why am I sorry I'm from Lower Roxbury. Well, what the fuck do I have to be sorry about? This is what it is. So even someone like me who puts in the man hours to learn about something, I understand going in, nobody is born an expert at anything. And you have to be able to accept that. I love the idea of not knowing something. I recently, you know, just got into, I was telling a friend of mine that I just study shit and just watch documentaries and watch YouTube videos to learn about stuff I know nothing about. One of my, one of my favorite things that I learned from someone, he told me, he was like, don't be afraid to be in spaces where you're not familiar because what comes out of it is nothing but positivity or positive things. Even if you learn that you don't want to be around these people or in this space, all you do is learn things. You can enter a room knowing nothing with a bunch of people that are knowledgeable about different things and just talk to them and just be in that space and interact with them. And when you leave, you're going to have a disgusting amount of wrinkles in your brain. You get a wrinkle in your brain every time you learn something new. So. That's kind of what powers me. And it's kind of the thing that keeps me up at night. And apparently the morning too. As I look outside and I see people getting ready for work or waiting for a bus or something of that matter. But one of the things that we talked about was, uh, this is an ongoing conversation we had on um, Twitter, the tap out. When I quit on television shows, when I quit on different artists' music, you know, things of that nature, what happens in a TV show that makes me say, fuck it, I'm done with this, I I give up? All these things are tied together. I believe everything is everything. Name of a Donny Hathaway album, name of probably one of my favorite uh, Brand Nubian albums as well. And it's something that I've said 
time and again. Everything is everything. Things are analogous to each other. Things are related. They're tied together. I try to look for the parallels in everything. And when they don't exist, I like to say they don't exist. And I think people try too hard to look for connections in certain ways when they're not just there. And I think this happens a lot, especially now in um, this new age of journalism. New, I guess, what? Less than 15 years? About that much? Where people kind of clickbait or kind of clickbaity with it. I fell out with a journalist not too long ago, uh, Keith Nelson, just there, because he ran with a statement that a artist made where he compared Kendrick Lamar to uh, Marvin Gaye. Now, I understand why the person made this parallel between Kendrick Lamar and Marvin Gaye. I totally understand why. It just doesn't make sense. And it's unfair to Kendrick and Marvin Gaye, especially for people that are like me, who know a lot about music history and the progression of music coming from the LP era into the modern era, you know, or the pre-LP era through the LP era to the modern music era. Now, for those of you that haven't been paying attention, you can say Kendrick Lamar is like the modern Marvin Gaye and people who don't know a lot about what that really means when you say it or the weight of that or how ridiculous saying that actually is will ride with it. Why? Because they don't grasp exactly what the fuck the gravity of what you're saying and how ridiculous it is. First of all, you can't compare and contrast a career like Marvin Gaye's with a career like Kendrick Lamar's. Why? Because Marvin Gaye came up in an era of music where the LP wasn't as important. So you could put out two LPs a year, maybe three LPs in the span of 12 months, and they're just out there. Just put out there. Just put out there because the focus is on your singles. So you can have five top 40 singles in that same span of time and maybe put out three LPs and none of those LPs matter. If you were to go look at Marvin Gaye's discography right now, do you know how many of these albums are not essential, inessential albums? There are so many albums in Marvin Gaye's discography that are just pretty much throwaways. You're not going to need them. You don't really own them. But the singles were what it was all about. That's not the case with artists. So if you're trying to compare a career like Marvin Gaye's to Kendrick's, what album are you on before we get into the meat of Marvin Gaye's recording career? Like, what LP is he on? That's, you can't compare that to uh, 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 Kendrick Lamar. You can't compare career, which paralleled that one, like Stevie Wonder's. Like, think about when Stevie Wonder's recording career began. Think about when Fingertips came out. Think about his first five albums. You know? Think about what album it was when his genius streak started. Like, think about that. It's not like a rapper 
where you put out these five albums over this stretch of years. During that stretch of years, this guy's put out 12. Because their careers are at different eras and at different times. And it's just fucking it's ridiculous. So, of course, I pointed out to this guy that it didn't make sense. And I ran down exactly why. And, of course, he didn't really pay attention because he hinged his entire uh, thing on. I said that people played Marvin Gaye's music at protests during protests. Why did I say that? Because this was the era of protests when Marvin Gaye made the music and it was flavored by that time, which forced him to make these artistic changes that Marvin that Barry Gordy was resistant to as also what pushed Stevie Wonder to do the same which Barry Gordy was resistant to because he was afraid it was going to hurt the bottom line it didn't it actually made people more endeared to Marvin Gaye and his art artistry and Stevie Wonder as well so he took that and ran because people were saying we gonna be all right at protests like, see, I told you people would be using his music as protest, but Dart Adams said he wasn't. And I'm like, first of all, that's a misrepresentation. What I actually said was it hasn't happened yet. And also, we're talking about different eras. You took a statement I said in a group of like in context of an entire 15 minute ongoing discussion about where you aired but you picked out one piece that you thought made sense and you threw it out there to the timeline without full context and that's the shit I don't like so no I'm not a fan of the idea of being a purist or an elitist or a snob because those connotations are that you overlook certain things and don't consider certain things just because this is the only way it can be which is fucking dumb I fell out with Robbie Edelson over his idea that he didn't fuck with Atlanta rap at all which is one of the stupidest positions to take there's still people that don't understand that I came up listening to everything. My friends, people would come back from Memphis with Prophet Posse tapes or Triple Six Mafia tapes, not Three Six Mafia. Uh, and we'd play them, listen to shit like X Rated, Dre Dog, the first Jim Jones. Or the new Jim Jones, which album? Sebo's, Gas Chamber, um, DMG, Detrimental Gangster, Gangster Nip, uh, Psychic Thoughts or What I Conceive, I believe that's the name of the album. We were listening to albums by like, in Boston at that time, I would listen to everything from UNLV, from the early days of Cash Money, you know? Um, I remember hearing Soldier Rags. We were playing stuff like uh, uh, Straight From The Deck. 
Uh, we, I grew up with everything, music from everywhere, and I didn't like we listening to Crips and Bloods banging on wax, and you would figure like, yo, how can someone who likes the beat nuts actually listen to this? Because I didn't give a fuck. I wanted to hear everything. There's value in everything. My brothers and I would watch movies that people thought were terrible because we knew that there's going to be something that someone's going to sleep on just because they wrote it off. You can learn from anything. And people are always surprised like, wow, you know about shit. uh, Movies like Prayer of the Roller Boys. Yes, because we rented it. But you only like this type of stuff or this type of stuff. Never fucking pigeonhole somebody. Never paint yourself into a corner. That means that you are locked yourself off from learning or experiencing things. And that's just not something I'm into. Now, another conversation we were having along these same lines happened to deal with. And of course, the theme being being a snob or an elitist, or having standards, which is not exactly the same thing, but you have to have as wide, as wide a breadth of knowledge and experiences to have taste. You can't just dip here, 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 here. You have to go all the way around. That's how you develop your taste. That's how you develop your sensibilities. That's how you understand different styles. That's how you understand how to gauge things and how to I guess, judge things because Tweety Bird Loke has a different level of entertainment and value than, let's say, Freestyle Fellowship. I can appreciate both. Just the same way I can appreciate an independent film like uh, Down by Law by Jim Jarmish, you know, or like an old Rutger Hauer film. But you have to experience everything. And the discussion that we had was specifically about LL Cool J. Somebody was talking about LL Cool J being a goat, LL Cool J being a goat, he's the goat. He even created the, the term the goat, blah, blah, blah. My statement was, and I've said this for years, anybody's paying attention, LL Cool J can't be the goat with a career batting average of 385. For those of you having trouble following at home, that means batting averages would be 5 out of 13. He's made 13 LPs. I'm saying 5 of them are worth owning. 5 of 13. Now, there are people that are like, wait, 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 wait. What you're doing is you are actually penalizing LL Cool J for his longevity. And then they say things like, look, we can look to a whole bunch of rappers with long careers and we can say the same thing. That doesn't disqualify them from being uh, the greatest of all time. And I'm like, yes, it actually does, because there are rappers with long careers who have batting averages of 875, 888, 909. Look at Scarface's career. Look at Master Ace's career. Look at Ed OG's career. You know, look at Ghostface's career. Think about how many Ghostface albums there are. Think about the Ghostface albums that you would put at the bottom. But then think about all the Ghostface albums that you own. 
Think about which Ghostface albums are your favorite. Think about the excellent albums he's put out just in the last 10 years and how they weigh. But has everyone heard those albums? This is the thing. When we look at LL Cool J's career, LL Cool J has numerous classics. Numerous classics. A gang of hits. But when we look at his albums, his classic albums are all-time great albums. But his misses are all-time great flops. And then there's an album that's right there in the middle, which we like to discuss going back and forth, me and all my rap friends. That album is, of course, Walking with a Panther. The reason why I have my views on Walking with a Panther happens to do with the fact that I was of record buying and listening age in 1989. And I remember the lay of the land, the landscape, the flavor, the time when Summer 89 happened and Walking with a Panther came out. I remember all the other albums that were smashing and blowing up and doing things. And I remember LL Cool J being ridiculed for putting out this body of work against the field in 1989. And this is what I hold on to because I remember having my brother buying the tape. I remember listening to Fast Peg, Def Jam in the Motherland, the original Jingling Baby, where we weren't sure if you were talking about titties or earrings. Um, I remember One Shot at Love, Two Different Worlds, Smoking, Doping. The album cover where they had a Black Panther that's not T'Challa with a dookie gold rope on it. And bottles of champagne. And that album cover just screamed cocaine. Cocaine. And it's crazy because summer 1989 is also when uh, Heavy D dropped uh, big time. And around the same time, 1989 is when um, we have Kumo D drop Knowledge is King, which overshadowed LL Cool J's album. He has songs like Big Old Butt. So LL Cool J had to recover from this album. And it started with a string of singles engineered by none other than Marley Mall. We start with maybe the Jingling Baby remix. Remix and still jingling. I think the B-side is Illegal Search. So the Illegal Search remix. So we're warming up. You know. We get uh, To the Break of Dawn. Off the uh, House Party soundtrack. LL Cool J executes one of the illest disses of multiple people. On a dance song. Listen to that shit. It's a dance song. To the break of dawn. It's a dance jam. And LL Cool J turns into a diss track. Starts out with what is a panther? An animal that kills. I'm like a shark with blood coming out the gills. We're trying to dance, L. You dissing folk. Three of them. Simultaneously. But it came from Ice T. Dissing LL Cool J and I'm Your Pusher following Kumo D dissing LL. And then uh, you got to remember that in 1989 is the end, the end time 
we're talking about a um a conscious era, a Afrocentric era, and LL Cool J didn't do that shit. And, um, retro. When we look back at it in retrospect, he stuck to his guns, which I can respect. But at the time, it was like, oh, you're not going, you're not going drop knowledge, you're not going kick facts. But a lot of people that was dropping knowledge and kicking facts in 89 wasn't dropping knowledge and kicking facts in 91 or 92 no more because that wasn't the wave. Crazy, right? One day X clans in. Fast forward a couple years. No, all the people that was in the Black Watch ain't in the Black Watch no more. What happened? So. We get to that. We get to the booming system. The booming system blows. Then was like, oh shit, we got an album coming. You know? Now, we fucking with a round away girl. Then we gonna be fucking with Mama Said Knock You Out. The album is out. The album's crazy. The album's nuts. LL's back. All the way back. At the same time LL's back, him and Ice-T had squashed the beef behind the scenes and they were both about to be in movies so ice T's about to be in this movie called he's filming a movie called new jack city at the same time ll filming a movie called um the hard way so ll had a had like a bit part as a cop in the in the hard way it starred james woods and michael j fox you know but ice t's role you know blew up in this movie, I'm pretty sure you never heard of called New Jack City. And New Jack City soundtrack like crossed over and then it became like a big rental. You I'm, and, and like people forgot the hard way even existed because I'm pretty sure like y'all don't remember it, even though Mama said knock you out is, I believe, the song used in the trailer for the hard way. And it's funny that this stuck in my head for all these years. And I haven't fucking watched a trailer for Hard Way on YouTube. I know it's out there and I know it exists. I know y'all probably forgot the Hard Way existed or you never saw it. I saw it. Sharpshooter. Hello, Cool J did have a good a good part in there where he was a cop on the desk cracking jokes. I'm pretty sure he didn't write his dialogue. And he was leaning out of the car shooting, shooting the gun. What a Kango on, I believe. Yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was good. That was great. That was interesting. I like that. But back to the subject at hand, um, people were getting on me for daring to say that LL Cool J was trash, and I'm like, I never said he was trash. I just said that his career, he can't be called the goat because of his. You look at his catalog. And it was like, yo, you're being too harsh. I'm like, I'm not being harsh at all. LL Cool J is one of the all-time greats. He's made great songs. He's had a great career. He's had comebacks like Muhammad Ali. You know, this motherfucker has made joints for a long, long, long time. Like, every time you try to count out LL Cool J, he's back. Love you better. Oh, shit, I thought she was done. L-bomb. This dude ain't done yet. You know? You can't count out LL Cool J. There's something to be said for that. But I keep having to explain to people, I'm not making these statements out my ass. I know of what I speak. But on Twitter 
and on the internet, all you see is a statement and you assume you know that this person's full of shit until you engage them. You're like, oh, oh, I fucked up. I'm sorry, professor. And this is also one of the things that bothers me about being lumped in as an elitist or whatever. Being an expert means that you have to immerse yourself in something and know it backwards and forwards and also understand that being an expert means there's going to be shit you don't know and you, you better be prepared to be corrected at any point in time. That just comes with the territory. And if there, there's no way to be in a field and not be expected to something happens, something arises is going to that you're, that's going to like challenge your ideas or your core beliefs and you better be prepared to deal with it and maybe not fight it originally, maybe listen. Because what can happen is it can change the way you think and improve it. You can't be resistant to everybody having ideas about what you think is trash or you were misled or your thought process might be wrong. Things don't get better without people forcing things and asking questions again. And this all comes from this is analogous to what homie does on ugly delicious he challenges the status quo he asks questions why is it that asian food can be as intricate and as hard to make and as impressive as italian food but because it's italian food and it already has this aura and already has this place in the hierarchy of foods that you have no problem going to a French restaurant and paying this price point. You have no problem going to an Italian restaurant and paying this price point. But due to also Asian culture and people's connection to it or view of it, we don't expect to go into a high-end Asian restaurant and have to pay commiserate prices that we would for French food or Italian food. Why? These chefs are just as great, if not greater, the food they're preparing is as intricate and as good or if not better. So why do we think this way? Why do we do this? That's a great question to ask. To resist that question makes you an asshole. These are the type of things that we need to think about and we need to always be challenged. So when I say things like LL Cool J has only five Albums worth owning out of 13. Think of it along those lines as opposed to you're an asshole for saying this about LL Cool J. No, I'm not. I love LL Cool J, but this a fact. I don't like Ja Rule. He's never made a classic album. He has plenty of hits. He has songs that will be played in the club forever. He has songs that will be played on the radio forever. Guess what? So does fucking Flo Rida. Florida, every album Florida made is absolute trash. It's elephant shit. But this motherfucker got singles and hits forever. But what it's flavored by is the fact that so many people came up during an era where Ja Rule was the soundtrack to their youth. 
that they automatically view this as me coming at their fucking core beliefs. So they attack without thinking, wait a minute, did Ja Rule ever make a classic? Because in their heads, pain is love was my shit. So of course it's a classic. But why do they think that way? When you look at the timeline of I bought this album in 99, 2000, 2001. Look at the wide scope of albums that came out in 2001. Look at the wide scope of albums that came out in 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. If you only listen to this small circle of rap albums, as opposed to the overall breadth, the entire diaspora that was there and available because you just didn't know about it because you weren't exposed to it. We're having a conversation that doesn't make sense because I'm talking about all this other shit and you're like, um, what? You're stupid. No, in my mind, you don't know what you're talking about, but in your mind, I don't know what I'm talking about. So then I get the question, who gave this guy a fucking blue check? He's an idiot. And he's an elitist. (laughs) So, yeah. But when we look at things like what makes me uh, tap out, what makes me say, no, I'm good, I'm done. It all boils down to your personal preference and your own individual, like, I guess, threshold. For whatever, like bullshit, uh, it's too crazy. It's not too. It's too believe. It's not believable enough. It's too weird. It's gone too far. They killed the person on the show who I was emotionally attached to the most, and now I just can't hang anymore because I don't care about what happens going forward. There was a show called um, Breakout Kings. Breakout Kings. The second season of Breakout King starts with Laz Alonzo's character dying. When Laz Alonzo's character died in that first episode of Breakout King season two, I remember looking at my brother like, do I, do I want to, do we, do we care? Do we care what, what happens? Do we? So we watched this second episode. We're like, eh, third episode, eh, fourth episode, we miss it. And it's not like we're like forcing ourselves like, oh, my God, we missed it because eh, there was something about that one guy that tethered the entire show together and made everybody work and made the dynamics work. You got rid of that one guy. and It's like, oh, what the fuck? I'm good. Conversely, there's a show I've been watching on sci fi. All this shit is Canadian. Um, and the shit's called Winona Earp. It's based on a IDW graphic novel. Or a series, comic book series. They killed, yeah, that's a siren. They killed uh, one of the characters on that show. The black guy. Xavier Dolls. He dies. Second episode, third season. After he dies, I'm thinking to myself, do I want to see this show and how it pans out going forward 
considering they killed probably the guy that I am top three most emotionally invested in. And I thought to myself and said, no, the show has so much shit going on and has so much interesting stuff going on. And it's so well written that I'm going to stick this one out for a couple episodes to see where it's going. Ninth episode happened a few days ago. I think in a couple of days, the 10th episode from this season and it's 13 episode seasons. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to stick around even though this guy's been dead for eight, nine episodes now. Because the episode after he died, they had a going away episode, a special a funeral episode mourning him. And I feel like the show did an excellent job of honoring that guy and showing what he meant, that character meant to everybody in that group and how they're going to continue for him. And you can't underestimate the importance of that in writing and giving back to a fan base. And it's one of the things that I was talking about earlier, and um, was it that, was it the episode before about what they did with Iron Fist, where they kind of listened to the audience, all the things that they said they didn't like about season one, and they kind of addressed it in season two, and they went away from things that pissed people off, and they went about doing things in a manner that made the fandom like, yeah, we're 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 with you, we're we're with you, we here, I feel you. But the tap out is key because at some point, everybody's level and everybody's thing is different. So not everybody's going to check out. Perfect example. True Blood. I remember telling people about True Blood for a minute. And for some odd reason, I think it was Twitter. There was this groundswell of people that were going to watch True Blood for the first time because everybody on the timeline kept talking about it. People outside, people at work, whatever, keep talking about this fucking show, True Blood. I think it was HBO uh, at the time. And we have to finally watch the show so we know what everybody's talking about. And what happened? God damn it, that episode of True Blood was the one where people were fucking in the woods. Because that chick was a... Was she a, a tree nymph or a satyr or something? Again... A show I used to watch, I just like gave up on it because I was like, uh, this is just too much, too much going on. I'm good. But everybody has their own level of where they're just like, no, yeah, basta. I'm out. It cracks me up, though, that there are people that checked out the first episode of Black Mirror. The first episode. When you think about the wide breadth of topics and the way that they were addressed in Black Mirror over all the seasons, that first episode is kind of like, hey, if you won't fuck with us over here doing this shit, then let's get you out the way now. Let's test you now. Let's see if you're going to ride. Because if you don't stick this out, you might as well leave this series the fuck alone. But I, I my brother and I had this conversation because he checked out the first episode. I was like, I guarantee you, if I show you individual episodes, because they don't follow the same arc. You know, they're standalone episodes. I was like, if I showed you five different episodes from Black Mirror 
you'd be like, oh shit, I can't believe that that episode is the one that turned me off of it, considering the wide array, the, the breadth of topics and the approaches that they have to tell stories about technology. You know, it's crazy. But again, sometimes people just look at me and they're like, really? Mad Men. Watch Mad Men several times. Every time I tried to watch Mad Men, I'm just looking at these people on the screen talking in their clothes, saying things, speaking well-written dialogue. Excellent actors don't care. I don't give a fuck about anybody on that screen. Somebody could come in and just throw knives at everybody and they all fall dead and I don't care. Whereas, I watch a show like Banshee and I'm on the edge of my seat. Anytime somebody dies, I'm like, oh no. Because I'm emotionally invested in this show. Ozark. I feel the same way about shit like Ozark. But, there are plenty of good shows that I just watch and I'm like, eh. I loved um, Breaking Bad. I can't really get into um, Better Call Saul. I've seen like three episodes of Better Call Saul. Eh. Not that it's a bad show. It's an excellent show. I just don't care. Snowfall. I love Snowfall. In the Snowfall. I loved um, Legion Season 1. I think Legion is some inventive shit. But am I going to watch season three after the shit that I went through season two? Probably not. Mr. Robot, a show I need to watch sometimes episodes two, three times. Because I'm like, did what, 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 huh, what? I like that, though. I like that you're fucking with me. Sometimes I like that you're fucking with me because you're acknowledging that, A, you're somebody that likes things on multiple levels. And we're making this for those people. We're making this show for people that know that there's something in that code. So they're going to check for the code or they're going to look at this or the way somebody types or what the person's reading in the background. I like that kind of shit. I like that attention to detail because there's certain people in the audience. And, you know, you make certain shows for certain audiences. It's like you make certain albums for certain audiences. Everything isn't for everybody. I just recently listened to um, Rock Marcy's new album, uh, Behold a Black Horse, or Behold a Dark Horse. That album is crazy. But the thing is that that album is not going to resonate with everybody the same way. There are people that listen to Kanye West albums and they're like, yes, this is the fucking soundtrack of my life. And I look at them like they're... They're nuts. But I understand, hey, we all have different things that we're into and we all have different experiences and different, you know, standards, different aesthetics that we like. Different things speak to us. So although I'm like, nah, I can't fuck with it. I understand that that's what you like. And I can accept that I'm just not going to fuck with it you know I can't do it Mm-mm. nah not the kid no so again 
today I'm going to hope that the Red Sox finally seal the seal it up and win the AL East for the third consecutive season from the hated New York Yankees. I just want them to do it in the Bronx because after 1978 and they blew the 14 game lead and they lost a one game playoff on October 2nd or 3rd, 1978, and I had to sit there and watch it. I'll love to see the fucking Yankees go down 11 and a half games with 11 left or 10 left. Just, really? You did this to us three straight years in our house? Again, if you're a Yankee fan, I actually I don't give a fuck. It's my podcast. But like if you're not into sports at all, I, I am. And again, I don't understand why people apologize for things. Oh, here's something weird that happened. A famous YouTube couple just announced we were together for like what three years or something. I announced that they broke up in a in a um tandem video and it's like they wanted to tell their fan bases to not leave hurtful comments or not hate people and they each have their fans so they're like don't be mad at him because we broke up I don't hate her I still love her we just need to take a break and she's like please don't do th- this with him I hate him or your pe- or your people his people don't hate me or my people don't talk negatively of him on Twitter and social media. And we're going to take breaks because we're sad about this. And they like live together. And I'm just like, how fucking weird is that? They had a personal thing with each other where their relationship wasn't working out for their individual, uh, wants and needs and goals in life and they want and they realize they both realize mutually that they should like stop doing what they're doing and in their relationship and they're apologizing to people that don't know them who are emotionally invested in their relationship who don't know them and believe that they're like couple goals i'm using air quotes you can't see like that's fucking weird to me you're apologizing for your life. What the fuck are you apologizing for? Just, yo, we're broke up. Personal shit. Life, motherfucker. One. But you owe these people an explanation and an apology because of the online social media fallout from it. Like, when you're somebody my age and you've dealt with real beef and real shit and real ramifications of life, like, social media shit, I'm not going to say it's not real because people's lives have been almost destroyed by shit that happened on social media via doxing or or gaslighting or uh, being harassed. And I'm sure that's what they were talking about. And also, like, fandoms can be toxic as all hell. And that's sad and disappointing because you have to ask the question, 
if you create something, and this is something that I'm actually, I actually kind of fear of, uh, even though I'm not in any fucking danger of it. I don't want to be somebody who gets big to the point where I have a fan base that can be that kind of toxic or fucking zealots or stands. And I always get asked, how come you're not more famous? How come you're not more popular? Because I purposely do things where I'm making sure that the people that follow, air quotes, me or whatever, aren't these people. They get vetted. They get tested. They're going to follow me. They're going to interact with me and realize that, hey, I don't need to be someone that stands you. Please know, if you disagree with me, fucking disagree with me. My friends disagree with me. My family disagrees with me. My family members stop following me on Twitter. Do I have a problem with it? No. I tell them I'd unfollow me on Twitter. I'd be like, shut the fuck up. What are you doing up at 730? Did you sleep? You know? So... Yeah.